Hey everybody, I'm Tim Whitaker, along with Rob McMichael and Jordan Renault. This is our podcast, Coffee, Theology, and Jesus. Our purpose for this podcast is to discuss this messy, difficult, and amazing thing we call the Christian faith. As Christians, we are encouraged and challenged constantly to see what the Bible teaches us about who Jesus was and how he lived and how we can better represent his message every day. Join us each episode as we explore how this relationship with Jesus affects everything from politics and religion to relationships and theology. Now that you know a little more about us, let's get into this week's episode. What is up, everyone? Welcome to the Coffee Theology and Jesus podcast. I am your host, Tim Whitaker. Today, we have a very special interview. I have on the show Jamar Tisby. Jamar has written two books. Um, The first one is called The Color of Compromise, and his most recent book is called How to Fight Racism. In this interview, it was myself and Rob along with Jamar. And let me just say, this for me was a very emotional interview, um, mainly because Jamar's first book, The Color of Compromise, really changed my perspective on how I viewed race and racism in America. Um, And so having him on the show was just a very special moment for me. I hope you guys enjoyed this interview. And what I recommend doing is that you do your best to really listen and be um, just eager to learn and let Jamar speak. Rob and I did our best to give Jamar the microphone and let him just go. And he has so much wisdom in what he has to say. Let me also add that our podcast is growing and we appreciate everyone sharing these um, episodes and we do have officially an Instagram at CTJ Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode and to subscribe. And also, if you guys could leave us a review on iTunes, that would be such a huge help. All right, guys, without further ado, here is our interview with Jamar Tisby. I hope you guys enjoy it. Welcome, everyone, to the Coffee Theology and Jesus podcast. We have a real treat for you today. I am joined here with Rob, who is normal for us. That's no big deal. But I do have a very special guest. I have Jamar Tisby with us. Jamar has written two books of of note. One is called The Color of Compromise, and his newest book is called How to Fight Racism. Jamar, it is. I'm thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you for making time. The feeling is mutual. Thank you for having me on the show. No problem. I listened to your most recent interview with the Holy Post, and I will do my best to make it not as awkward as Phil Vischer. <laughs> you know, he does that on purpose, and I don't mind uh, as long as we're we're covering good content. Let's 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 make it let's make it awkward. We need a little bit more of that. Yeah, that's true. Get started. That I I want to say personally, thank you. Your book, Color of Compromise. I mean this sincerely, has changed my life. It changed my view on racism. I, I listened to it on audio. There, there were moments where I was angry and so frustrated that, that I never heard this before. Then there were moments that I was crying and weeping over stories that you shared of, mm. of just terrible lynchings that happened. Uh, the one with a pregnant woman in particular, it just broke me. Yeah. My, my wife was pregnant at the time, and it, I was wow. just wrecked. So I appreciate you stepping out and doing this because um, if it helps, you are changing people and I am one of them. Mm. So thank you mm. for, for, for doing that uh, incredibly important work. Well, I appreciate your, your very kind words, Tim. Uh, I, I take them as an answer to prayer. That's, that's my hope. I was transformed learning this history. I was, I think, catalyzed learning about uh, this stuff that even as a, a black person, even as somebody who does racial justice a lot and talks about it a lot, I'm learning a lot of this for the first time in my 30s, you know, so so we all have a lot of work to do. And I really do believe in the power, you know, broadly of truth telling to to change people, but specifically in terms of telling the truth about our racial history to be able to shape and change the conversation and action around racial justice. So, again, I do appreciate that. And and I hope, um, you know, history as a vehicle brings Mm -hmm. more of that kind of response. Yeah. Yeah, I'm 32 now, and I feel the same way where it's like, how did I get by my whole life without learning about even the big picture overview of this stuff? So um, so I, let's start here. I always ask every guest, why don't you give us a five-minute you know, big picture overview, who you are, how you got to, to where you are now, some big life-changing moments. The floor is all yours. Thanks for that. Um, I think what's most salient for our conversation is kind of my spiritual journey. And so um, I grew up in the Midwest in a family that was not 
anti-religious. We just weren't religious, really. It wasn't a big topic. Um, and so I really came into my own in terms of uh, faith and Christianity in high school, and that was through the ministry of a white evangelical youth group, which very much shapes the way um, I've interacted with Christianity. So these, these issues of race and religion were kind of always part of my journey because I was always one of a few or very few um, people of color and black folks in these fellowships. So that's where I first got introduced to sort of organized religion, organized Christianity. Ended up going to undergrad at the University of Notre Dame, which is, of course, a Catholic school. Mm -hmm. um, but I had gone to Catholic schools uh, K through eight. I was very familiar from that perspective, but I was definitely a Protestant and um, had been exposed mostly to the evangelical tradition. But it was in college that I got exposed to something called Reformed theology, which is part of my journey and testimony. Um, what drew me to it was it was just a lot of a lot of bible right it was a lot of like you know taking scripture unpacking it in ways that i just hadn't heard before it was very intellectual that appealed to me um i didn't know anything about its history or culture or anything that i would find that out <laughs> yeah. along the way yes um and so the first uh reformed church i went to was a dutch reformed church mm, okay all different branches of reformed theology right this was a dutch reformed church and it was quite the experience uh culturally and theologically so it was the first time i really heard exegetical preaching just going verse by verse through books of the bible and again that scratched an itch uh, a hunger that i had to, for for really deeper um uh understanding of scripture but it was also very Dutch. I mean, they were serious about that part. Uh, <laughs> and one thing I didn't know, I didn't know apparently like just, just, just in terms of heritage wise, Dutch people are very tall. It's a tall group of people. Yeah. So they're like, ladies, men, <laughs> six feet and over. I'm not, I'm very short. And so I stuck out in every way because, you know, usually when you say, you know, I'm the only black person, you, you usually mean you're one of a few. I was literally the only black person. I might have been the only person of color, period. And I was shorter than everyone else. So I <laughs> stood out in an ironic yeah. way. Yes. Um, so anyway, uh, race and religion, after I graduate college, number one, I'm wondering, are there any black people who believe this stuff in reformed theology, right? And I found Tony Carter's book on being black and reformed. So um, I said, well, there's, there's at least one other black person who knows about this. Um, that kind of kept me going. But what was really transformative is I joined Teach for America, moved down to the Mississippi Delta, Arkansas side. And um, that was supposed to be for two years. It's, it's been over 10 and, and I'm still here. So uh, this is where issues of race and justice and religion really come to the fore for me. So, so there was a USA Today article in 2019 that named my county as the fourth poorest county in the entire country. Hmm. And that is tied up with generational poverty, going back to sharecropping, going back to race-based chattel slavery and, and all of that. And so now we have all of the issues that come along with poverty from, you know, food deserts to undereducation, underemployment, uh, mass incarceration, all of this stuff is walking into my classroom on two legs every day. And now I'm asking questions of my faith, of my religion, what it has to say about these real world, tangible issues that my students and their families and this community is going through. And in the evangelical and reformed tradition that I had been exposed to, I found out not much, didn't have much to say right. or enough to say. And so that started me on this journey. Fast forward, I, I go to a seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, it was among Christians in this uh, season of life that I experienced the most acute racism I've ever experienced in my life. Um, this is when I began kind of speaking and talking and writing publicly about race. And uh, it, it was almost an inoculation uh, within these Christian communities against uh, these, these issues that I was bringing up. Um, and there was attack. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was like, uh, you know, pernicious antibodies attacking uh, something <laughs> that they felt was were threatening um, their bodies. And so um, it was in 2015 that I took my first graduate course in history at Jackson State University. I still have my notebook from that class, and it blew my mind. 
Uh, it was on the history of the New South, which is post-Civil War South. And you would think, okay, great, abolition, emancipation, things are going to get better. Well, much of that history is the history of Jim Crow mm -hmm. and segregation and lynching and inequality in all kinds of ways. And it was so horrifying, so startling, so inspiring in terms of the resistance um, that I decided to sign up for a PhD. And it was in the coursework of, of, of doing the PhD in history at the University of Mississippi that this idea for my first book, The Color of Compromise, came out. So I don't know if that was five minutes, but that's, <laughs> that's okay. Highlights. I mean, so I guess we can start here. I mean, first off, that's a it's an amazing story. And I, I grew up in reform circles as well. And I kind of had my own, you know, um, intro in and then exit out of, okay, you know, thanks. But I, I also have found myself, um, even as a white American, finding myself in the same situation of like, why are there no categories in my reform tradition for handling like social issues like this? I mean, abortion is a social issue that, Obviously, these groups are very outspoken about, but when it comes to issues like this, it's like, no, it doesn't exist. Um, it's it's not real, whatever. Why do you think there's so much opposition there? Like, like what is the pressure point that, that we're hitting that makes people just go, no, absolutely not. I will not acknowledge that reality, um, even though as, as you're finding out and I'm slowly learning, it is very much a reality for many people in America. So... My friend Micah Edmondson, uh, who's a church planter in Nashville and a theologian, he, he speaks of the Reformed tradition and says, um, you know, they, they did better theology than they actually knew. And uh, that is to say that there are resources within this tradition to actually address some of these justice issues, particularly around race that we're talking about. And one of the, um, if you look at the, the, the Westminster Catechism, for instance, there's this uh, really thorough and detailed exposition of the Ten Commandments, uh, what they prohibit and what they require. And if you look at something like uh, the instructions around the Sixth Commandment, uh, thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder, th there's really robust um, theologizing that if we applied it to race would be quite helpful. So it's talking about, you know, doing... Um, not doing anything that would sort of tend to the taking of the life or or more broadly kind of the flourishing of your neighbor and on the flip side doing anything that which lends to life of your neighbor right so you can easily apply that to all kinds of isms you know racism classism sexism kind of a thing so so that's one part is is like a lot of christian traditions actually do have the resources never been applied in these particular ways which then begs the question why not? And, and then a lot of times the theology stumbles into something good around racial justice, but that's not necessarily the focus when it was being formed. And so why is that, which gets closer to your question? I mean, the short answer is white supremacy and racism benefit white people. And unfortunately, we're oftentimes more shaped by the culture than Christ. And then what happens mm -hmm. in our theologizing is that we come up with biblical excuses to justify our prejudices and proclivities. Mm. Concrete example, this is what happens in uh, the Civil War. There are a group of people called pro-slavery theologians, mm. and they use their prodigious minds to bend over backwards and make all kinds of twists and turns with scripture to justify race-based lifetime chattel slavery mm. which is as far you know the bible mentions slavery but it's a very culturally specific kind of thing and what we're talking about in the u.s as far as race-based chattel slavery is about as far as you can get from whatever the bible talked about right. um, as possible and yet there were plenty of white people who in the academy and, and, and in church leadership were theologizing and, and coming up with books and sermons around this. And there were plenty of sort of rank and file white Christians who were totally willing to go along with it because it confirmed their ideas of supremacy. It protected their comfort. It was not challenging to them um, in, in ways that, you know, fighting racism would be. And you can see this on and on and on throughout history. We've, we've mentioned um, this on the podcast before, but just just looking at Paul, 
Um, you know, if you looked at Paul and looked at his letters and writing about the mystery of what is the church and bringing Jew and Gentile together, and if you if you look closely at at his arguments, it it defeats the undergirding of racism. It defeats the undergirding of a a slavery based society. But like you're saying, I think there were so many theologians that were getting lost in the woods, where they were just um, lost in this echo chamber of, well, we can build this doctrine and build that doctrine. And it's like, well, guys, you missed the entire part, the entire purpose of what Paul was writing about. Right. And he was writing that all of you, it doesn't matter if you're the highest ranking official in your city, or if you're on the lowest end of the totem pole, you're all coming to the table to meet with Christ and you're all equal. And right. it, it, we, we've missed it, somehow we've missed the entire purpose of why Paul was writing. And I think it's important to also realize that these issues, particularly around racism and white supremacy, they become, um, specifically for sort of conservatives, theological conservatives, battles over the Bible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This mm. is absolutely what we saw in the Civil War, where pro-slavery theologians are saying, listen, the Bible nowhere expressly condemns slavery, it in fact, regulates it. And if you want to say we should abolish slavery, then show me chapter and verse uh -huh. where the Bible says that. And, 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 and more progressive or liberal uh, Christians were saying, did you read the Sermon on the Mount? Did you read Matthew 25? Did you listen to Jesus? Do you look at the entire thrust of the Bible? Yeah. Um, what about the book of Exodus <laughs> and this whole, right. like literal liberation from enslavement? And so, um, but, but, but what, what uh, pro-slavery theologians did, and you could also add pro-segregationist theologians and things like that, is say, no, we're the ones who take the Bible seriously because here it is in black and white. This is what it says in their, you know, literal interpretation, all that mm -hmm, stuff. Mm -hmm. And and they accused people who were advocating for racial justice of 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 doing funny things with the word of God, of mm. not taking um God's word seriously and 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 putting words into God's mouth, so to speak, to to fit their quote unquote agenda of abolition, emancipation, desegregation, you name it. Um, so, so it is very important to realize that, you know, not only were people actively formulating theologies in support of racial oppression, they were also viewing it more broadly as, you know, who's a genuine Christian, who's not? Yes. Who takes the Bible seriously and who doesn't? And that battle, those battles continue today. Well, that really ties into, again, I'm, I'm gonna defer to, you have permission to correct me on anything I say historically, because I'm just learning about this on a big picture. But it does tie into um, the fundamentalist evangelical kind of merging that we that we know about over the past, I guess, hundred years or so, maybe maybe even farther back, and how that fundamentalist approach of a hyper literal, I would say, flattening out of the Bible. You know, you're you're re you're reading Genesis with the same voice that you're reading Romans. Um, has done us a disservice because, you know, we talk about this all the time. I always mention the Bible Project, Tim Mackey. They've done an amazing job of telling the story of the Bible and all the nuance that's going on. And when you listen to guys like that or N.T. Wright or whoever, you know, John Wallen, and they bring the Bible to life, you go, oh, my gosh, what looks like on a black and white surface it's a command. It's actually not at all. And so I, I found that to be accurate. And that's also one of the reasons why I've stepped away from a lot of Reformed theology. It's not because they don't know the Bible in the sense of chapter and verse, but like you guys said, they can't see the forest from the trees. You know, it's like, guys, there's a bigger picture happening here. And I, I found that a lot of the pushback I get is the same thing where it's like, oh, well, Tim, you're just like, um, you know, you're just you're just a Marxist. I mean, if I, if I hear Marxist or socialist one more time, it's like, guys, <laughs> read the Sermon on the Mount. So my question I was going to ask you as we kind of move forward in this conversation is how do we, like, what do we do with those slurs? Like, when did liberal become a slur? I don't know. But it's frustrating to be told, oh, Tim, like, you're just fighting for Black Lives Matters is a Marxist organization. How can you possibly support that? And it's just like, you know, facepalm moment of, guys, like, yeah. if we look at just, you know, the Sermon on the Mount 101, we can see we should be fighting for this. How do you get around some of those conversations? So remind me if I don't answer your question, but I wanted to 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 mention this based sure. on, um, you know, what we we're just talking about, which is, 
where do we where do we get our theology where we who mm. from whom are we learning mm. theology and christianity so a lot of this is uh what i call an epistemological echo chamber um where where folks are in a bubble of accessing literally only european and white typically male sources mm -hmm. and it's not to say that there's something inherently wrong with the theology that, that, that derives from those sources. It is to say that there's many, many more sources, many, yes. many more yes. voices out there, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you're only going to sort of one source, one sociocultural location, which, by the way, we, 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 we bring our theological questions, a lot of them arise out of our social and cultural location, which doesn't mean there's not eternal truth. It just means that we're going to approach the Bible with different priorities, different questions, different needs, and, and, and things like that. And so if you're only accessing it from one narrow slice of the church, one single part of the broader body, it's going to be deficient. This is, this is sort of the argument for diversity, yes. is uh, racial, ethnic, cultural diversity also helps sort of broaden our theological lenses too. And so, you know, where do I get it? A lot of theology from the black church tradition comes down through our preaching. And so uh, what I'm saying is because we were excluded from more formal forms of education for the majority of history of this country, even Christian schools and seminaries weren't letting black people and people of color in. Uh, we were also not writing the more quote unquote formal theologies, you know, that you might find in a book or, or right. systematic theology. But there is theology being done, is my point. And, and a lot of times mm -hmm. you find this in um, the preaching tradition, which the, the, the black church has, has elevated to an art form, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, you find this in music from Negro spirituals to blues music to even hip hop music. Mm -hmm. um, you find this, I think, in history. I love history because history has the receipts. And a lot of the things we say we believe mm -hmm. We demonstrate what we truly believe through our actions and history is all about looking at actual actions, actual events that, that, that happened, actual choices that people made far apart from what they might say in a sermon or in a testimony service, right? At church or something. Mm. So, so that's one part is where do we get our theology? Mm. But then you asked about, you know, the, the labeling. Well, you know, putting it in historical context, there, there's, always some sort of label or labels that racial justice resistors, as I call them, hmm. affix to racial justice advocates for the purpose of putting them in a box where they can put it on the shelf hmm. and ignore it and dismiss it. And just looking at the 20th century, of course, in the post-World War II era, there's the Red Scare. And um, in a convoluted way, communism comes to be tied to the civil rights movement and racial justice in general. So you can Google right now, uh, uh, race mixing is communism. And there's a picture of white protesters back in probably mm -hmm. the 60s, and somebody's holding this uh placard this sign that says race mixing is communism and so they called king and fannie lou hamer and all of their those folks communists and marxists um atheists it gets wrapped up in it too and the same thing is happening now just with different labels they still use the communist marxist atheist thing but now they have latched on to critical race theory yes. as the big boogie yes and so you know, understand number one, what's happening is this is a, 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 a both a dismissal and a deflection. Mm. It's a dismissal and a deflection. So it dismisses anything um, folks who get slapped with these labels say. And more importantly, I think it's a deflection from what the real issues actually are. And in the 2020s, that is by far and away, in my view, Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm rather than communism, Marxism, yeah, yeah. critical infiltrating the church. Christian nationalism has, and, and it's actually got a long history, and it's far more bloody, violent, dangerous than, than any of these labels that they're using. Yeah. Um, wow. I said so many good things there just to tag on. Uh, it, yeah. The critical, the CRT thing, I'm seeing that more and more come out, 
you know, I know the SBC, all, all six, I think, of the main leaders of that came out in agreement. And it's like, well, from my knowledge, CRT is still even being defined. It's not very, it seems like it's pretty ambiguous. And I was kind of shocked that, like, that was such a quick response. And you're absolutely right around the Christian nationalism issue. In fact, we had a podcast episode um, when the insurrection happened, and my jaw was dropped that I'm looking at Jesus banners being hung over the Capitol while, you know, this is happening. And then I'm seeing largely a pretty quiet response. I mean, there were some people, Russell Moore had some great articles that came out um, that I thought was really powerful. But but for an evangelical culture, you know, I, I, I know my name calling. So you have the Franklin Grahams of the world, Bill Johnson's, they're quiet, you know, and Franklin Graham comes out later on and says, shame on you for voting to impeach Trump. And I, I feel like I'm losing my mind. Like what is happening to the faith I'm looking at? People are misrepresenting the name of Jesus and, and the reaction is, oh, well, they're not real Christians, so it's okay. Or, well, it's not that bad. And it's like, oh my gosh, like, what what book are we reading? What history are we looking at? So it gets you really fired up, honestly. <laughs> uh, your mic's still off. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there, the, the, so here's my thing. Here's my thing. So of course, Christian nationalism, it, it, and we can define it. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a sociocultural, political ideology, much more so than a theological or religious thing. You might call yes. it a civil yeah. religion. Um, obviously we understand this is not the Christianity that Christ preached, of course, mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm very careful to, 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 to make clear that even though this is not the Christianity of Christ, it is the Christianity of America. Yep. It is yes. the Christianity that is a lot closer than people would like to admit. So these folks who showed up at the Capitol. They're in your churches. They're leading mm -hmm. Sunday school and Bible studies. They're elders, deacons, and even pastors of churches. They are your relatives and your friends. They are not holed up, you know, in in you know Northwest United States somewhere <laughs> right. in their own enclave, yep. and they just you know sort of pop up at these protests. They are scattered everywhere. And here's the real pernicious thing, which gets to the thesis of my first book about compromise and complicity. So the people who actually broke the windows, sat at the desks, stole items from the Capitol building, you know, built a literal gallows, mind-blowing. Yep. Also mind-blowing, this isn't, they tried to kidnap, literally kidnap the governor of Michigan. Like, like, yes, it, I remember that, crazy. That should have stopped all the presses and say, we need to deal with something. So anyway, yep. that group of people both now and historically has has numerically been a minority numerically has been a very small group but what allowed that to happen is a whole bunch of people who were silent apathetic willfully ignorant and were complicit in 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 these most egregious acts of uh, uh white racial extremism terrorism yeah. You're so accurate. You're on the money. I tie it back as well to the conservative media machine. And I grew up on a steady diet of Limbaugh, Hannity. I mean, I, that's how I grew up. My dad is very much that way. And looking at, at the machine and seeing how it pushed Trump's ridiculous notion of election fraud. I mean, watching it be be pushed out to I, Rob. Rob is sick of me talking about it because <laughs> I've ranted so many times on this on this podcast and on my new evangelicals account. Cause it's like, are we, are we seeing this? And then you have pastors on, on stage. I've shared their videos of them expressing how the election was fraudulent. You know, it's like, wow, you don't really, you don't realize how intertwined the conservative machine and Christianity has become until all of a sudden this happens. And people are again, not all, but are largely quiet about it or they're endorsing it. So this issue that we've seen with the insurrection certainly was not overnight. It's been in our pews. It's been, Push from the pulpit, like you said, for years, or it's been allowed to happen, and we're kind of reaping what we sow. Um, but I do want to get to your book. That's why you're here. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, no, you're more than welcome to chime in. I was going to say I can tie it into your new book. Um, <laughs> Very good. <Yeah. laughs> um, because I I think part of part of the what you address, especially in the beginning of the book, is wrestling with your um, racial identity. And that's not just for 
Black America is. It's not just for the minority groups. It's for everyone. Something that we have to grapple with. And that's what I think impressed me the most was, oh, this isn't something that my my black friends just have to deal with this is something that i have to deal with how was i raised how how what was the culture like that i grew up in how has that influenced for good and for bad how i'm viewing the activities and social surroundings and so i think what what tim's going at is is one of the areas that mm-hmm. we do have to grapple with ourselves um coming out of that culture and then now we, knowing that being real being honest with that now we can look at other cultures and other people and how they're processing things and be like you know what now i can get a better understanding because i know my own biases right 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 so one of the things that um in in how to fight racism as uh, more and more people are, are are making their way through the book is they are resonating with precisely what you pointed out which is uh all of the the book every chapter contains uh, what i call racial justice practices Hmm. and it it, i say in the introduction that this is a book that prioritizes the practical i i I spent a whole other book (laughs) the color of compromise explaining the issue and talking about how we got here this second book how to fight racism is what do we do about it Hmm. and so there's so much inner space to be explored as we're talking about fighting racism and so there's a sense in which we have to fight racism within ourselves as part of the broader struggle and what i've found even in my own life like you said this is not just for white people this is for black people and people of color is so much of how we've been shaped and formed racially speaking has has gone unexamined and so what I what I what I suggest in the book is that you write your own racial autobiography. Yeah. And I love this because all you need, anybody can do it. All you need is a, a paper and a pen or keyboard and a screen, as it were, and your memories. And 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 you go through, I give, you know, prompt questions to to prompt your your writing. And and it's just simple stuff like what's your earliest memory of race? Mm-hmm. Or have you ever used a racial slur or been called? a racial slur? What did your parents teach you about race? How did they talk about it? Those kinds of things. And and I find that's incredibly helpful because we do start to unpack our biases and prejudices, yes, but also our traumas and in rare cases, even our triumphs um, yeah. uh, of how we've fought back and, and pushed back. But it's one of those places, it's low-hanging fruit about where to start, but it can yield a lot of good fruit as well. Wow. I mean, I'm, I'm uh, right now I'm in about two chapters in your book. So I just started this one and I'm, I'm grateful for it. Cause when you announced it, I thought, thank goodness. Cause I, I, I will be very transparent with you, Jamar, as a white, you know, cisgender male, I'm like, what can I do <laughs> to fix something that I feel like I have no, I should not have any ownership or any leadership position. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, like, how do I sit back and let, and let my, uh, black American family lead. Um, you know, how do I do that? So I'm grateful for this book. So, I mean, what do you say to someone like me? Who's like, I see it, but like, what can I do without getting in the way? Cause I don't want to get in the way of this, right? This is not a white savior thing. This is how do I take a step back and let other people lead and give up some of my power and privilege for the sake of the other. So what do you yeah. say to that? A few things. Uh, number one is some some self-examination is required. So I, I, I'm seeing a lot more people, particularly on social media, starting the light bulb comes on, right? They're, they're starting to realize that racism is an issue, an urgent issue in the present. What they believe before, you know, is various degrees of wrong. <laughs> and, and they're finally starting to get it. So, so the first question I would ask is, is introspective. And it's like, what took you so long? And it's not a judgmental question. It's, it's, it's really an analytical question. Why did it take some? Because there are a lot of people, including white people, who already knew this and have already been you know, taking action to fight racism. What was it about you, your beliefs, your circumstances that made it take this long, however long it took? The other question is this, not just about you individually, but about your community. So many of our racial beliefs are shaped by our communities. And so it takes a, we got to take a critical eye to our faith communities, our families, um, wherever we are and how 
those communities of people shaped our beliefs and perhaps our ignorance around racism. Beyond that, if you are new-ish to this conversation, I'd say you're new if it's, if it's you know, in the past 10 years, this is, this is, this is <laughs> and sign know, me up. I'm brand new, <laughs> right? Uh, it, it, that encompasses a big group of people. Um, if you're new to this rough estimate, 80 to 90% of what you say about race, racism, and white supremacy should be you quoting, pointing, retweeting, highlighting, uh, black people and people of color who have been doing this much longer. So you want to, you're talking about how we, you know, as a white person, you don't take over this conversation or have a savory complex, (laughs) you know, don't speak as much as you pass the mic to others who can speak um, more knowledgeably, more complexly and and, and with more nuance than you. And you're also serving a, a, a bigger purpose of helping to give spotlight and platform to groups and individuals who who don't have it mm. historically and traditionally speaking so in that sense you're using the the space that you could take up and you're you're lending it to others which is really hard to do because it is space you can take up and you might even have good things to say mm. but as a matter of equity even um how can you ensure that others are being heard mm. uh so that's when one of the things that really irks me is like white folks who, who who got it like, you know, 16 minutes ago, yeah. suddenly become, not only do they speak, all the white people listen to them mm. and aren't even asking, well, you know, who are the people you learn from? Where are the black voices and other people of color who, who have known this forever and, 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 and who have really shepherded you and guided right. you and planted seeds along the way, but, but they'll just retweet and post and watch the video or listen to the podcast or whatever from white folks when black folks and other people of color have been saying it for literally centuries yeah um if not you know years in terms of our contemporary context so so not taking up that space even when you could the last thing i'll say is Mm. there is you know i talk about in the book something called the arc of racial justice stands for awareness relationships commitment i won't Mm. unpack all that right now but on the commitment level it says that prejudice works not just through people, but through policy. This is something that white Christians really struggle with, that racism goes beyond my own attitudes towards someone or beyond my own treatment of an individual. It actually gets to the very fiber and fabric of how we treat one another in this nation and in the society. And the Mm -hmm. only way to, to make broad scale change on important issues, mass incarceration, voter suppression, maternal death rate, maternal mortality rates. Only way to really make headway on that is to work on a legal policy level, Mm -hmm. an institutional and a systemic level. Mm -hmm. And that requires, I mean, to be quite honest, it's gonna require a lot of white Christians to drastically rethink their political theology, Mm -hmm. namely not to equate christianity with the republican party yep yep no that's that's powerful i want to i know rob you have a question and we have we have about 10 minutes left so as we get ready to wrap up my final question would be along the political lines um you know it seems like the way i I view a lot of our my evangelical culture is that the lens that we wear first is is a lens of politics and then the bible right it's like okay i'm conservative therefore i'll see the bible through this politically conservative lens and obviously people, and I think you would agree, you don't want to have the liberal lens on either and read it through that lens as well. But at the same time, I do find that at least on a verbal level, I hear much more about racial policy, at least being attempted to be changed on the Democrat side, the Republican side. Now, I'm not sure the, you know, how well that's, I don't know. I just don't know how well that, that, that's enforced and stuff. But like, what do we, how do we be faithful and advocate for policy change? Like in, in a culture that is like you're either if you're liberal you're automatically these categories you know you're either this is this is sort of find like the both and instead of either or so what's your recommendation to, to christians as a whole around that like how do we be faithful to the kingdom and like advocate for this politically what do we do with that 
Yes. So, I mean, it reminds me of Joshua 5, where uh, Joshua has the dream with the angel, and he says, you know, are you for us or for our en enemies? And the angel says, no, I'm, but I'm, I'm the angel of the Lord. Yeah. And it's like, we got to get on God's side about mm -hmm. this, and it's not left or right, blue or red, whatever it is. But I say that not in some wishy-washy both sides kind of thing. Mm. I'm going to say something that might tick off some of your listeners. This is just Jamar. Don't, don't blame Tim or Rob. Um, we are not dealing with the same thing with the two parties as we speak of in, in uh, the 2020s. They're not doing the same things. They're not standing for the same things. Mm. There's one party who refuses, as we record this, to hold accountable the, the, the immediate past president for literally inciting a riot and an insurre insurrection. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking just about through one speech. I'm talking about through two and a yep. half solid months of disinformation and misinformation about election fraud okay. that ignited and catalyzed the most violent malicious elements of our society to the point where they did stage an insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th that resulted in five people dying on that particular day, right? Um, and it's as, as if that wasn't bad enough, you have Republican elected officials at the state, local, national level who will not, A, say the election is legit, and or B, yep. distance themselves in any meaningful way, like impeaching the president from, you know, the man who incited this from the 45th president. And you have a party that is making it literally as hard as possible for certain groups of people to vote, which is the opposite of democracy. You have a party that is against almost any form of gun control. You have a party that is pro-death penalty. Mm. Um, and what are Democrats standing for, which immediately you got to qualify it and say, oh, I know they're not perfect. Yeah, duh, we know that. We've always known that. <laughs> right. But we do have a difference. Mm. We have a president now who said in his inauguration speech that we have to fight white supremacy. Those two words together, white supremacy, may have never been uttered in an inaugural speech before from a president. Mm -hmm. uh, you have someone who says, wear your masks mm -hmm. in a pandemic. Right. So I say all that to say, <laughs> we're not dealing with two equal, equally bad in different ways parties right now, mm. just in this historical moment. We're not. And if you are sort of politically or socially conservative, then you need to take back your party. Right. Or form a new one. I don't know what the solution is, but yep. the, as it currently stands, yeah. if, if you lean, if you think there are principles there and stuff to conserve and preserve, then, then your voice needs to be heard because the, the, the voices almost uniformly coming from the Republican Party right now yeah. are just, fascist, a lot of it or complicit with fascism. Yes. I mean, listen, I'm glad that you were that direct. And by the way, everyone, take that as my view. Maybe not Robin Jordan's, but I'll take that one. So that's cool with me. Um, you know, yeah, before we wrap up here, I, I totally agree. I think it's really well said. I, I believe that Trumpism is different than conservatism. Like there's, there's adequate conservative policies that could be good for a country. And Trumpism is this other breed. That's just my, you know, as of right now. But all right, Rob, I, I want to give it over to you um, before we get ready to wrap up. So fire away. So I, I called Tim on my way to work this morning because I was like, Tim, I was listening to How to Fight Racism. And I had like the biggest light bulb moment I've ever had in my life. So I will, I'll, I'll paint the picture. I was listening to the part where uh, you were reading about black therapists and how you are a big proponent of therapy. You were in therapy and your first therapist you knew was not equipped to uh, give you the advice and the counsel that you required. And you kind of went into this. Um, there's cultural reasons why there's not enough black therapists. And that for me was the biggest light bulb moment I've ever had. So 
I'm in, I'm an engineer. So I am in a predominantly male white career. And I've always, I've always seen, um, let's say equality of outcome as a really bad thing. If you have equality of outcome, that means that you're giving up um, the quality of something because now you're going to bring down quality to let other people in that aren't as qualified for a job. That's how I've always thought about it. Until I realized what we're dealing with, we have to bring equity. We're not bringing equality, we have to bring equity. And to do that, we may have to sacrifice quality at the beginning. So I may have two candidates come in my office and one is slightly less qualified, but they're a minority group. And if, if they start to bring in to and come into the engineering field, and now there's younger generations of people growing up in school saying, look at that black engineer, look at what they accomplished. Maybe engineering is something that I can aspire to do as well. And so may, we might have to sacrifice a little bit of quality in the beginning because the, the sheer number of black engineers out there isn't as good or isn't as prolific as white engineers. All right, guys, pause the interview. This is Tim Whitaker in real time. Let me just say that Rob asked me to come back on and to stop this portion of the interview for a second to mention that he is aware of how the last paragraph sounded um, in what he just said. Um, what it can seem like he's saying is that black people aren't as smart as white people, but that is, of course, not at all the intent. And you're going to hear Jamar really put better language on what Rob was trying to say in a minute. But we just wanted to acknowledge that we are aware of how this sounded uh, during the interview, and we're grateful that Jamar was gracious here. And obviously, Rob does not believe that. He was just processing this thought out um, in real time. So hope that helps. Let's get back to the interview. So the minds, and it just hit me so hard, the minds that we have been passing over and the people that we have been passing over that, are, that should have been in professions but felt like they weren't good enough or they weren't qualified enough, or, or that they couldn't succeed because there's no one there. I mean, that's, that's one of the big reasons that, that Kamala Harris is such a, such a breaking point for a lot of people. There's someone that black uh, children, black girls, and girls in general can look up to and say, look, anything is possible. Mm -hmm. There's now a vice president who is a woman who is a person of color. And yeah. for me, that was just like, such a such a mind-blowing moment mm -hmm. to just shift my perspective on that totally yeah rob you're under something really important um somebody put it this way on social media uh amanda gorman is the young poet who 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 yeah. did a spoken word poem at the inauguration and i i remember following her that morning before she did the poem and she had something like twenty-three thousand followers yep. on Twitter, by the end of that day, she had 1.3 million followers. She was that good, right? That was right. And, Ew, that's right. <laughs> right. And, 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 and I remember somebody commenting and saying, um, there's an Amanda Gorman at every black high school in mm. the country right now. And, and the only difference between you know, an Amanda Gorman and and someone else or even better um between an amanda gorman and you know the the scads of you know white artists who who've had opportunities right is opportunity yeah and so you talk about equality of outcome what what black folks and racial justice advocates have been saying forever is 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 um we want equality of opportunity mm. um that being a certain skin color or having a certain income or living in a certain zip code should not drastically limit your possibilities for opportunity and flourishing, whether that's political, economic, mm -hmm. educational, whatever it might be. Engineering is a great field as a sort of case study, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, it is not that you don't have brilliant people who are capable of doing these, these jobs. It's, um, we are not getting the same kind of access yeah. uh, that white people have historically had. Mm -hmm. And so what do we do, like you said, to bring equity? Um, and, and, and then to the, to, the, to, the, to the issue of quality, um, 
maybe this resonates. I am not a math guy, barely, <laughs> barely a science guy. Um, but it, it, it would seem to me that, you know, uh, in, in these professions, you want as many data points as possible, especially when you're testing out ideas, right? Uh, because mm. that's going to give you as many different ways to evaluate the effectiveness of something as possible. And so I think that, that, that racial, ethnic, and cultural diversity, those are other data points. Yeah, that, that, that we want to have that on the front end, even if, again, because of a lack of opportunity, not a lack of ability. Exactly. Um, there, right. there, there might be difference, differences in skill sets. What are the other assets and what are the other skills that that right. that that different folks are bringing? Right. And so if we broaden our idea of of what qualifications, yep. you know, someone should have then I think it, it's, it's a lot more, makes a lot of sense and it makes it a lot more palatable to, to think of how we might bring equity in these, um, in terms of opportunity. Yeah. yeah. Jamar, this was uh, honestly, for me, a very emotional interview. I mean, it just mm. rocked me, made me think about a whole, about a whole lot of things and a lot of self-reflection is needed. Um, you know, and, and my, cause like you said, I'm, I'm brand new to this and I'm just trying to shut up and let people talk. <laughs> or yeah, read you books, let me talk you know? a good bit. I, yeah, I, I try, you. you know, I'm, I'm reading the book by Esau Macaulay, Read Them All Black, another yeah. great book that's just, again, rocked me. Like, oh my gosh, I never saw it this way. So um, I really appreciate you making the time and coming on the podcast. Um, do you want to plug anything? Where can we find your book, your website? Plug away. Yes, yes. A, a, a lot to plug. One, we are raising a half million dollars for... Um, the Witness, a Black-led Christian mm -hmm. organization. And um, what I'm really excited about both of our divisions, the Black Christian Collective, which is putting words to the expansive Black Christian experience through uh, blog, website, social media, and also our newest endeavor, the Witness Foundation. We're in, in process now of selecting five Black Christian leaders, and we're gonna offer them training as well as $50,000 per year for two years. Awesome. So if you want to donate to that, so they can do justice work. Um, if you want to donate to that, visit thewitnessinc.com. Also, buy the book. Uh, yes. My second book is How to Fight Racism. Go to howtofightracism.com. It is available wherever books are sold in hardcover, ebook, audio format. And there's also a video study that we just released as well. And then lastly, um, I started my own newsletter. Oh, called footnotes and it is uh on substack so go to jamartisby.substack.com subscribe to that newsletter and you'll get all of my rantings and ratings <laughs> i can't wait jamar we are with you we support you you're doing amazing work thank you for coming on yeah, thank thanks you for having me thanks thanks for checking out the coffee theology and jesus podcast you can always drop us a line on facebook or through our email podcast at coffee theology and jesus.com as we love to hear from our listeners. Until next time, drink coffee, discuss theology, and love Jesus.